Hi everyone, um, I'm Dr. Louisa Sun. I'm an infectious diseases physician at uh, NUHS. And uh, thank you very much for listening to us last week. We again have Professor Dale Fisher with us today, and he'll be answering more of your questions and we'll be discussing some of the hot topics around COVID um, this week. So uh, Prof Dale, um, one of the things that um, I think the world is abuzz with at the moment is um, all countries are actually talking about, and some countries have already started, to lift some of the restrictions or circuit breaker bans. Um, I think this is good news for some, bad news for others, and maybe we can go into a little bit more detail as to what we might expect um, after these restrictions uh, or circuit breaker bans are lifted. Hi, Louisa. Truthfully, I'm extremely nervous about these. I, I know we need to do it. And like everyone, I'm looking forward to, to a bit more freedom. But uh, I don't want people to be over-enthusiastic, over-optimistic. I think it would be just so depressing to have to wind back and, and go towards and go the wrong direction rather than unlocking we start locking up again it's everyone really needs to understand that transmission chains need to be controlled and 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 stopped and if you can keep working from home keep doing it keep distancing don't mix with large numbers of people uh, if, if you can't distance always wear your mask these types of things, I think, are going to be crucial as we go from level one to level five in Singapore and level one to level three in Australia. And every country is doing it slightly differently, depending on what's important to that country, socially, culturally and economically. And, and I get that. And we have to do it. And it's a good thing. And I'm happy about it. But I'm really nervous about it. Mm, gotcha. Um, so one thing that uh, I think uh, some countries are already seeing after some restrictions were lifted is an immediate rebound um, in the number of cases in the community. Um, for example, Itaewon in South Korea and um, Zilin in China. Um, and we're seeing New Zealand is actually trying to uh, lift its restrictions slowly as well this week, and we're not sure how um, that's going to play out for them. But um, um, around this topic, a lot of people are now talking about um, this entity called R0, or, which is known as the basic reproduction rate uh, of any infection. And um, I'm just wondering whether you know, R0 um, in this context is really useful and whether the R0 you see during um, a circuit breaker period is really, it can be representative or can be a, um, a marker that you use to really say that it's suitable to now lift restrictions. So everyone, I, I th or not everyone, most people I think see the outbreak as as one thing and there's a, a Singapore outbreak a New Zealand outbreak an Australian one a UK one mm -hmm. but it's it's much more granular than that it, it's there can be community transmission sure but and, and that's where the circuit breaker works but then in very at a very granular level there's little outbreaks within the outbreaks and and in fact Singapore, for instance, is made up of all the, the dormitory outbreaks. 
Uh, there's some small nursing home outbreaks. In the US, there's been the meatpackers outbreaks. Uh, in fact, you know, and, and they're all separate factories. In Australia, most of the numbers have actually been driven by, by three outbreaks, a, a nursing home in New South Wales, an abattoir in Victoria, and a, and a hospital one in northwestern Tasmania. So it's, you, you might look at Australia's numbers, but actually to go down a level, you'd look at those, those three places really, as well as perhaps some very limited uh, community spread. And, and same in, in Singapore, we've got different epi curves for, for nursing homes for, for each dormitory. And in fact, each dormitory within each, within each floor of each dormitory, even within rooms. So, so there's, there's different epidemiology if you look deeper down. So the aim will be to control community transmission and I think we're going to see this kind of asymmetric epidemiology going forward where there will be little outbreaks in individual places which you go and give specific attention to. Uh, but as long as the numbers in the community stay low, then that's, the, uh, that's, that's where we won't need more social restrictions and circuit breakers and lockdowns or whatever. And, and I'm talking about the whole world now, not just Singapore. Mm -hmm. Now, within we're, to talk about our north, that's that's the number of people that are infected by one case. Mm -hmm. And if the R naught is one, then every person with the disease infects somebody else, and that's where you get a very flat curve. Uh, one becomes another one, and then that person, the first person recovers, and then the second person gives it to the third person. Second person recovers, like that. So there's always just one case. Or if you've got a hundred cases with an R naught of one, then it's, there's always a hundred people infected at, at, at one time. So therefore, if you bring the R naught below one and say one person infects half a person or two people infect just one person, then eventually the outbreak goes away and the numbers or the numbers become very low. However, if the R naught is, is three or four, then you get an exponential growth. So it can be like one becomes, one, one person infects three, then those three can infect three others. So you get another nine, then those nine infect another three. So you get 27 added on. And you can then see that the shape of your curve is, is really a steep upward one, which, uh, which we've all seen in, in, in virtually every country. Um, how that happened and how, how does how do you go from 1,000 to, to, to 3,000 in just a few days? And that's because that's, that's what happens. One to three is the same as 1,000 to 3,000. It's the same period of time. So, so it's, you, you can manipulate the reproductive number with interventions. Mm. So it's not right to, to give a reproductive number to, a, to an organism. It, it, you really have to factor in in the context. So, for instance, in a in a nursing home or a dormitory or a cruise ship or mm -hmm. anywhere where there's a dense population, the R naught could be could be much greater. Whereas if there's people sparsely populated, then it might be quite difficult for one person to infect another person. Mm -hmm. 
All right, thank you, Prof. I think that um, brings a lot of clarity to this uh, concept that people might have been hearing and reading on the news and just wondering, you know, exactly how useful or uh, how to interpret it. Um, this, well, you mentioned that, um, I mean, initially all countries were seeing a very steep rise in cases when the R0 was high. One thing that um, we touched a bit upon last week as well uh, was, you know, the major worry in this is actually um, the case fatality rate or the number of deaths that you will start to see if the cases start to rise very sharply. Um, and uh, perhaps we could just explore a little bit more detail as well. We talked about some patient-specific factors that might affect the mortality rate last week, but um, on the whole, in general, um, is there anything or any few factors that might affect the case fatality rate for a country? Yeah, the case fatality rate is, is, is quite tricky. The, the, the rate is the number of deaths divided by the number of people with the disease. Now, generally, it's, much, it's, it's not too difficult to count the number of dead people, although, although that can be confusing because we know this is why China had to add on a lot of extra cases because they, mm -hmm. they, they went around and, and looked at people that, that died of COVID and that, that hadn't been captured first time round. They, maybe they died at home, things like that. Yeah. And that, that's not to say the numbers were being hidden. They just weren't in the the reporting pathway if you like mm -hmm. so if you're diagnosed with COVID and you're admitted to hospital and, and then you die those will be captured but if for instance you, you die at home and and you're you're taken to a a, a morgue um and, and just processed in a in a different way then maybe it won't be captured so yeah. so the the deaths can be wrong there's also definitions of WHO definitions of what, what is a COVID death. Mm. Um, and, and this is slightly controversial as well. For instance, uh, if you have COVID and you die of a heart attack, then that probably won't be counted as a COVID death, uh, according to the WHO guideline. Uh, personally, I don't think that's right because we, we think it can uh, influence the the sort of throng, uh, clotting potential of the blood. Mm -hmm. So so we know people might get clots in the lung or or clots in the in the coronary arteries to cause a heart attack. So so but anyway that's that that's the way the definition is. So even counting the deaths is not so simple. It is much harder to count the denominator, the the number of cases. We know um, a lot of people with the disease aren't acknowledged we know in italy and new york and uk people were told if they're if they're not too sick just stay home the hospital yeah. is overwhelmed mm -hmm. so all those people weren't counted um then there's lots of people with incredibly mild disease or even asymptomatic disease and we know we go swabbing contacts of cases sometimes and and they're positive and we're going wow that they've got no symptoms yeah. which it's one thing to think how are we going to control this when asymptomatic people are walking around with it but uh do we count those people it's it's impossible to count all the asymptomatic people that never presented into the denominator uh but obviously some cases are where where you're doing very aggressive swabbing you're going to find a lot more asymptomatic people or or minimally symptomatic people that, that didn't present so, so this can give hugely 
different case fatality rates just on those two numbers alone. But then there's the, the other issue, which is very real. And that's when, I, let's say the case fatality rate for a particular age group might be 1%. Now, if it's, if it's 1% of people with clinical illness die from it, if you're, say, in your 60s. Now, if the hospital is, is overwhelmed and there's no, there's no doctors or nurses to attend to you or you've run out of oxygen cylinders or there's no ventilators and you can't get the support you need, then maybe the, the, the 1% is, is based on a system where, where you can get perfect care. Now, maybe the case fatality rate goes up to to 3%, for instance, we found the, the case fatality rate in, in Wuhan was, was many times greater than the rest of China. And that's because it was overwhelmed. And, and we all recall the terrible scenes in Italy where they're making decisions on who, who gets the ventilator. So, so that, that's a, a very real... Uh, so, so the case fatality rate can be affected by the numbers and how you count them but it can also be affected by an overwhelmed health system. Mm. Um, so what's the case fatality rate of, uh, of COVID-19? Um, it, it really does depend on, on how you count it, but it does really highlight the fact that it has to be contained so that you don't overwhelm the health system and, and people can get the care they want. Mm -hmm. I think this might have been something that uh, was perhaps overlooked with um, initial reports saying that actually COVID causes really mostly mild cases. Um, and even at the beginning, even if we didn't know about the asymptomatic cases, um, people might have been thinking that, you know, this is the basis for um, another kind of concept that they wanted to try out, which is herd immunity. So this is basically letting people just, you know, um, get the infection, stay at home, um, and hoping that, you know, a lot of these cases would be mild. But um, I think that one thing that people may have overlooked is that if, you know, um, the cases rapidly or exponentially increase, and even with a low um, case fatality rate, hospitals become overwhelmed, and that's when the case fatality rate can go up further. Um, is there any scenario at all whereby herd immunity um, may have worked, uh, or in this kind of pandemic, it shouldn't be, you know, the way to go at all? So... It's hard to mention herd immunity without talking about Sweden. Um, if we just go to the UK, uh, with their population of 65, 66 million, herd immunity, actually, let me go back another step. What is herd immunity? This, this is when there's enough people in the community that have actually had the disease that they will protect you. So, so uh, if, if, uh, if someone else has got, uh, so someone's got COVID, but, but most of the people around them are immune, therefore they can't spread it. Therefore the R naught comes below one and therefore the outbreak eventually dies away. So this, this is the concept, which is very true, that once enough people have had it, there's not enough in, uh, immune naive people Mm -hmm. to sustain the outbreak. So 60% is the, the number that's generally talked about. Um, in a higher density population, it would be more. 
in a lower density population, it'll be less. Mm. So, but let's stick with 60%. So with the UK's population, 60% is about 40 million. Um, now at the moment, there's about uh, 240,000 laboratory diagnosed people in, uh, in the UK. Now let's, let's say it's a million, okay? There, there weren't that many, there, there were a lot of mild cases, there were many that didn't come to, to hospital and get a diagnosis. So let's, let's even multiply it by four and say it's a million. So to get to herd immunity, England has to go through what it's been through 40 more times. Now there's been 34,000 deaths so far. So you're gonna end up with, with I think about 1.4 million would, would, would have to die. So you can do that maths for any country. You take your population, you work out 60% of it, you look at the, the number of cases they've had now and maybe add, add them up a little bit to, to, to bring in some mild ones that weren't diagnosed and then work out how many times that country has to go through what they've been through again to, uh, uh, to get to herd immunity. And that's why I think it's, it's not palatable. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even, if, uh, even if it was... I don't, I don't know, you, you took, it, took the 1 million to, to 2 million and say 2 million were affected. You'd still have to go through it 20 more times. So, so there's a big death toll with, with herd immunity. Sweden, which is a country uh, not quite twice the size of Singapore, has had, uh, I think, uh, approaching 4,000 deaths now. And, and they're... they're strategy i believe they're the only country in the world with the strategy which uh which says just let it go uh and and they're paying for it in deaths and and that's not what i agree with but uh sweden and uh somehow this message has been been uh given to the the swedish people who have accepted it uh that that's that's how they're going to do it the, the reason, obviously the reasons against lockdown is it's not without a toll doing what we're doing against COVID, the, if you like, the, the conventional approach. Um, All-cause mortalities are going up uh, in, in many countries, whether it's heart attacks or strokes or cancers. Um, vaccination rates of, of children are, are coming down. Uh, so, so there's health consequences when we focus too much on COVID. Uh, there's obvious economic consequences. There's mental health consequences, um, social consequences in terms of domestic violence and uh, uh, divorces. You know, I think mm. I, I think there's a there's there's a lot of bad things that that we're doing, but I still can't get away from the massive number of deaths you know as as i said 34 34 and a half thousand deaths in the uk that's 34 and a half thousand people that would probably be alive now if not for covid so so you do have to consider the balance but preserving the health system is is the ultimate balance so at least if people get covid um you can look after them and and at least we can 
uh, try and work on the, the, the other medical, non-COVID medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, that's a really jarring number, um, thinking about how many deaths um, UK may have if we're allowing herd immunity. Um, And you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, not overwhelming the healthcare system is a concept that is really important, not only for COVID, but as you mentioned, all the other usual patients who need um, healthcare, um, the other chronic diseases. I think we know that a lot of them are kind of uh, suffering as a result of the hospitals being completely overwhelmed by COVID at the moment. Um, And then there will be, there will need to be some catch up uh, later, definitely. And even now we may be seeing um, increased Uh, mortality from the usual chronic diseases. So um, again, I think, you know, this this presents a very important front why why containment, I suppose, as you mentioned, the conventional route is still something that has to be very, very carefully balanced, even as countries are lifting their restrictions. And um, it will be very different for each country, each um, small kind of ecosystem in each country to try and um, maintain a balance between going back to a certain new normalcy and then still uh, making sure that you know the cases are not, um, or so have you, the are not is still maintained at a level below one. Um, I just want to end off by um, just, I suppose, uh, summarizing, or, or rather saying that I've been reading a lot of um, news articles um, and some pre-printed papers. We touched on this about uh, the vitamin D. Uh, paper last week. Um, And there seems to be just um, so much news generated each week or each day. Um, And some of them really sound like they make quite a lot of sense. Um, And I think there's topics that people are very concerned about, um, including things like, you know, new new test kits, uh, whether it be PCR or whether it be serology, um, and as well as, you know, um, articles regarding the vaccination. Um, And even I myself get a little bit confused sometimes about how much of these are to be believed because a lot of them do come from quite reputable universities or you know or sources, and um, but at the same time it's quite overwhelming and some of the data is still um, not yet or is still a bit contradictory too. So how do we kind of differentiate what we're reading and just to make sure that you know we're not getting caught up in another um, epidemic, which is the infodemic that comes from such large amounts of news being released every day. I- I, th- I think I said this last week to you, Louisa. I think you've yeah. answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's the first thing we have to understand is it's not surprising. COVID is devastating all aspects of life at the moment, mm. and people are desperate for improvements in the situation. And obviously, we're desperate for a vaccination. We're desperate for for treatments which which reduce the the death toll. We're desperate for really cheap efficient, 100% sensitive tests that can be scaled up rapidly. Um, We're we're desperate for everything. And and it's not surprising, therefore, that the news feeds that. As soon as there's Mm. hint of something that could be good, it's released and talked about. But I would also ask that if it's if it's still news the following week, then maybe. But uh, so many of these things come and go overnight um, mm-hmm. because they are just that. It's vaccines going into, into animal trials or phase one human trials. 
it's expected. It's and and people go great. We're getting a vaccine. I go no. We was we were we were supposed to have be at this stage by by April May. Um, are, are people claiming that tests are, are are fantastic? Sure, they are as soon as they've invented them. But once there's a bit more a bit more experience with it, then you start to realise that oh, there are false positives. Oh, there are there are false negatives. Oh, actually, it's quite unreliable. So everything has to stand the test of time. Information is getting out and that's a, a good thing, but more so than ever. I've never seen in, in my life uh, met, news on medical technology released so quickly, pre-publication um, releases. Uh, it's, it's often in the media before it's actually scrutinized by, by, by the peer-reviewed system of medical journals. Um, and and this is understandable. It, it's also kind of good because people want to want to know things are happening. But but I would urge people to not celebrate too early. Just uh, just remember it, uh, read it, understand it for what it is, uh, and and make sure it's coming from somewhere. The news is coming from somewhere reputable. Um, I feel the less reputable sites and 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 reporters are trying to make a headline. Uh, mm. it, even some of the claims from medical people on uh, on uh, television and radio and print uh, making sensational claims. Really, I, I, I guess just for for. Um, for less than <laughs> less than uh, good reasons, mm. so I, I think people just have to be smart uh, and and consider all the news for what it is. Okay, sure. I think that's a good general rule. What you mentioned about the one week kind of mark, um, if it's still there or if it's further developed and you know it gets further validated, that can be quite a good marker that you know maybe this is something to really carry forward and follow through. Um, but it's good that so much news is out there, that you, as you mentioned, and I will continue to keep reading myself. And um, all right, so thank you so much for our listeners today. And uh, we welcome any kind of feedback. And if you have any questions on any particular topics COVID related, uh, please do send them in. And we hope to see you again next week. Thank you so much, Prof. Dale Fisher, for your time. Thanks, Louisa.